We are um, we're going to be finishing the book of Zechariah tonight. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter twelve, yeah, Zechariah chapter twelve. Um, I don't know. It's been a if if I'll just do kind of a brief overview of the way the book was sectioned out. But it, when we look at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah had some prophecies that from chapters 1 to chapter 8 was all about Zechariah's time. Like when he was going to be living, he was seeing these things being fulfilled in his lifetime. And so he got to see like the restoration of the temple. He got to see all these things happen. And then when we got to chapters 9 through 11, Zechariah saw this, uh, saw the first coming of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that was interesting about that is he sees him come, but we see shepherd and when we get to chapter 11 we see the good shepherd and we see uh, another shepherd that comes along a bad shepherd and we talked about that those two things that we saw were one was Christ came in his first coming and then the second one was the Antichrist that was coming so I guess we're just gonna it's gonna blip periodically are you guys hearing it I'm hearing it as well so it's all good you guys can hear me it's just for the live streamers I guess so (laughs) you're here so we Anyway, so um, we see at the end of chapter 11 this, the, this bad shepherd come along, one that doesn't care for the sheep. He's going to tear them up. All those things happen right at the end of chapter 11. And so when we get to chapter 12, we see something miraculous and awesome and beautiful come to be because now it's the second coming of Christ. We, we start to see, and, and I'm glad you're here this evening because this is like one of the most exciting things is we're seeing this culmination of the day of the Lord, the things that are happening. Um, 12 through 14 shows his second coming, when he will come and stand on the Mount of Olives. And so we've got 16 times we'll see the phrase, in that day, show up in the last three chapters of 12, 13, and 14. And the day of the Lord was that bringing together of the kingdom of God. He's going to, all attacks against God are going to be done. The Old Testament, when we see messages or we see prophecies about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it was always wrath, um, wrath of God coming down on people. That's what you would see. But when we get to the New Testament, there's hope. We see something else happening with the day of the Lord. One of those things we see this hope and joy because there's victory. We see that Christ is returning. Um, The enemies are going to be vanquished. We have the restoration of the Jewish people. And it really all comes down to... Where do you stand before the Lord? Is it, are you somebody who is rejoicing and excited about the day of the Lord that when he comes and returns? Or are you a person who is, has hated God your whole life, didn't want anything to do with him? Well, the day of the Lord is going to be wrath and judgment and terrifying. And so it's how we, how we come to um, this book of uh, Zechariah chapter 12. We'll pick it up in verse 1, but let me pray real quick for us. So Lord, as we open your word tonight, God, I just pray that you will uh, bless the opening of your word, um, bless the sound system, bless all the things that are going on here in this place, Lord. Uh, Don't let there be distractions, Lord. We don't want anything to distract from your word, and I just pray that uh, right now, God, you will just uh, be with us this evening, Lord. May your Holy Spirit just work on our hearts as we look into your word, God. May it speak to us, and may you be glorified through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So... Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. 
when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile, like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. So when I was reading through this, the first verse of this just kind of blew me away. Just, um, especially with our day and age, what God is saying here, he's saying he's the one who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So this isn't something coming from someone, um, this isn't the idol of the world, but what he's saying is, you know, I am the one who created all things, I created you, and it's just kind of interesting here, we're talking about the, the summation, things are coming to an end, and here we see this book of Genesis type language where he's saying, I created all things, and I created I created the soul of man, which is interesting for our time that we're living in right now. I was, you know, we, we keep, I mean, this, I don't know if anybody's following this uh, new satellite that they put out. Is this satellite? What's shooting off? It's the, somebody know the name of it? This is not the crew that knows the name of that new thing. <laughs> anyway, they're shooting into deep space because they want to look at the farthest things into the reaches of space. And they want to see the origins of the universe. And, and, and I mean, it's, some of the photos are amazing. You should look at it. It's the James Webb. That's it, James Webb. Thank you. All right, it finally came to me or someone said it. I don't know. But it, James Webb. So look up some of the photos. But we're living in a day and age where they're going, okay, we're going to find the origins of the universe. You know? And we're living in a time there is no God. That's what people believe. Our science keeps wanting us to believe these types of things. The heavens stretch themselves out. There's no God that did that. Um, the earth was formed by accident. No God was laying the foundations. And man is a clump of cells. No one is forming the spirit of man. And I just feel like this is a message for the people today. And, and you've got to believe as Christ is, when this is going to come to an end, whenever this happens, that there's going to be this awakening that's going to happen in the hearts of people. They're going to finally go, oh, someone did lay all this in place. And God's making this declaration here. Um, the one who controls human life and all of existence is making this declaration. Um, uh, so God's declaring that something's going to happen, and it all begins with a siege against Jerusalem is what we see here. There's going to be this great attack that's going to come against Jerusalem from the Gentile nations. And this is the time, when we look at it, this is a time of the tribulation. This is the end. This is the battle of Armageddon that we're seeing playing out here. And um, God is declaring this work. It's going to be the work of his hand. If you look at some of the verses, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. Verse 3, he says, I will make. Verse 4, he says, I will strike. Verse 6, he says, I will make. This is the covenant-keeping God that's making these promises to the people. And this prophecy is being directed by him. So he's the one who is the creator of all things. He's the alpha and the omega of all of history. And it's, it's coming to be. And everything begins with a siege. Zechariah has a couple metaphors that he brings into play here when he's talking about what's going to happen. 
Jerusalem will be a cup of drunkenness that all will drink from. And so if you can think about a cup of drunkenness, these nations are going to drink from it. They're going to be staggering around without the, basically the picture is they're staggering around. They won't have any ability. They won't be able to function normally because they're going to be, God is going to do something that's going to cause this drunkenness to come upon them. Not, maybe not necessarily real drunkenness, but it's just what it's looking like. It's staggering around, unable to function, unable to work. And if you are, I'm becoming more of a historian as I'm, uh, the history of Israel as I've been studying Zechariah, but if you look at, God has done this in the times since Israel became a nation in 1948. Several wars have taken place, and God has done this. Seven wars have taken place. Thank you, John. <laughs> since since this has happened, since they became a nation, and there are times when this this type of drunkenness, this stupor, these types of things, if you look into uh, the different battles, the Six-Day uh, War, uh, the Yom Kippur War was really interesting because there were times in there where it seemed like Israel was ready to get blown away, like they didn't have the forces. Yom Kippur was really interesting because they were all fasting. There was like no one, no one available to fight. I mean, they, they were all taking their... I mean, really, this was a brilliant plan of Syria to come against them because they, everybody was fasting. They're off doing their own thing. There were limited resources for Israel. And, and they say, okay, we're going to come against them. And Israel, they're coming down, they're attacking, and it seemed too easy for Syria. And they end up just stopping because they're like, Israel must be up to something because why is this so simple for us to be able to do this and get in here and wipe them out? This confusion that starts to happen in the minds of people, God is protecting his people, and we're seeing that. And so that happened. There were other times, uh, I believe in the same war, that, you know, where forces, they believed that there were forces that were uh, at war. There were, um, Israel had none of the forces available, and yet it seemed like to the enemy that there was all this attacking coming, and they thought there were all the, it was one tank, and it was, and they thought there were hundreds of tanks fighting against them. Just fascinating things as you look into the history. And that's what we see here happening again. Uh, there's going to be this crazy thing that's going on in the hearts of the people during the Battle of Armageddon. And the second metaphor that they give, he says he's going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. And this is a stone that's hard to lift. They would use big stones for like, um, you know, weightlifting competitions, and you keep lifting up bigger stones until somebody's the winner, like they can't lift up the stone anymore. And the idea here is that this person's going to, they're going to try to pick it up, and there's going to be internal damage. They're going to get a hernia when they try to pick this thing up. And so they're trying to pick up Israel and try to wipe it out. So picking them up, conquering them, and they won't be able to do it. It's simply going to destroy them internally when they try to do this. Internal damage. So we, we see this, um, the the Battle of Armageddon shown in Joel and Revelation. Um, and it's fascinating when you think about it that Israel, Jerusalem is at the center of human history. Everything is always culminating around them, and that's what's going to happen here in the Battle of Armageddon. And even though these nations are coming against Jerusalem, it isn't Jerusalem that's going to do the fighting. It's not those people. If you look in verse 4, it says that God is the one who's shielding his people. He's going to strike the horse with blindness, He's going to make the rider, uh, he's going to give the rider of the horse will be stricken with madness. And, you know, horses are symbols of strength, power, war. We, we talked about that earlier in Zechariah. And, you know, when you have these two things, you've got a, a blind horse and a mad rider, things aren't going to work real well together. You're not going to be able to come against 
come against the people very well. Now, you know, these may or may not be real horses. This could be just what's going to happen. It's going to be total confusion when they try to come against, try to come against it. It's going to be so chaotic. Verse 5 says, the governors of Judah say in their hearts. So there's, there's going to be this supernatural thing that's happening. You're seeing all this thing where Israel's not doing the fighting, but craziness is happening to those who are coming against it. And they're going to know it's from the Lord. They're going to know that. I have this confidence that God has chosen Jerusalem, and it makes everyone around have confidence. They realize the only way that they're going to be saved is because God is with them. It's going to start that opening of their minds. And the governors, in verse 6, in their newfound covenant, their confidence, they're going to be like a fire pan in a wood pile or a fiery torch in sheaves. So you've got a, the picture of these two things, highly flammable objects with something that really puts off some fire. It's like, basically it says, they're not going to be able to stand against this. Two images that just show them being completely wiped out. So when the enemies go into the countryside, God is, says he's going to use the governors of Judah to set them aflame. They're going to be wiped out. No one's going to survive. So there's, there's going to be protection from God, and Jerusalem is going to be inhabited in her place once again, built up back up again. So verse 7 says, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So you have this um, sense that, you know, this is a time for humbling all the nations of the world. Even Israel, they, God doesn't want them to get puffed up in themselves. And that's what we're seeing here in this. He's saying, um, so they don't magnify themselves. Jerusalem doesn't magnify themselves. He's going to save those in the country first. And, you know, he's humbling the nations. He's humbling Jerusalem. And God gets all the glory when, when he's doing the one that's defending. And he's the one that's taking care of all this. The glory of God will be shown. Not man's ingenuity is what we're going to see. And it says the one who is feeble will be like David. And if you think about David, he was one of the greatest soldiers that ever lived in, in the history of uh, Israel. He defeated Goliath, a lion, a bear. I don't know whether you have those on your resume or not, but I don't have those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the weakest, the weakest is going to be so encouraged and strengthened by the Lord that they're going to be like David. And then the house of David shall be like God. So the angel of the Lord is before them. The, so the angel of the Lord camped around them. So the house of, the, of David represents the royal line. So there's going to be this power of Christ in this army that's going to be amazing. And in that day, he says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God's going to wipe them out. All those who sought to wipe out his people, his kingdom, they're all going to get wiped out. And this will be a time of unmatched power that will only be attributable to God. So that's the kind of what we're seeing here as this is all playing out. And then we get to verse 10, and it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, 
and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and the wives by, themse by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. So in the middle of this great military victory, there's going to be a great spiritual awakening that's going to happen. Um, it's going to take place in the hearts of Israel, and the Savior is going to be revealed. So when we think about it, the more than physical victories that happen in our lives is when spiritual victories take place. And we see you know, that happening here in the Jewish people. And God's going to pour out his mercy and pour out his spirit of grace and supplication. Um, and I, you know, just as I was thinking about this time for them, there's going to be, you know, it seems like when we're in the deepest, hardest places in our life that, that God awakens us to new spirit of grace and supplication. He does something in our hearts when we're in the deepest, darkest places of our lives. When we, when we look to God in those situations, he, he does that. And so this merciful blessing will lead to humility and repentance in the hearts of the people. Um, made me think of John 16:8 when Jesus said that when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what we're seeing here is this spirit being poured out. And the Jews in this moment are recognizing their sin. It's going to be poured out in an effective way. It brings conviction. It overwhelms the Jews. And without the Holy Spirit doing this in their lives, in, in our lives, you know, we wouldn't be saved either. This is what God has done in our lives. We're saved because of the same grace and uh, glorious mercy that he's shown us. And it'll lead to great mourning, it says, as they realize who they rejected and have been rejecting. And um, we were at Colleen's funeral, <coughs> funeral yesterday, and Tim was talking about us mourning in those moments. And, and my mind was thinking about this and just the mourning that they're going to be mourning over their sin. And look what it says. It says they'll mourn. They're going to mourn. Um, They're going to mourn as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It, there's something about mourning over a son or a firstborn that just there's a deep sense of mourning in those moments. And for this recognition to happen in the hearts of the Jews, that they see who they had pierced, who it was that got sent to the cross, it's um, going to do a mighty work. And... This is a sign of true repentance in Israel, mourning over sin. God's demonstrating his faithfulness in this moment to, to the people of Israel. Uh, Jesus spoke about this moment in Matthew 24. He said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Um, John it said there was a fulfillment of this when he was standing at the cross. And, you know, he, remember, he, he's standing there before he sees the soldiers pierce Jesus' side. And, and he made, he references back to this passage that not one of his bones would be broken. And he says, and another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And I think John at that moment was saying, this is the moment we're looking on the Messiah, the one who was pierced. And then that same revelation is going to happen here in the last days. So they looked on him at that point, um, but when we mourn over sin, it, it's, it's something happens when you look at Christ, the Messiah. You may be sorry for your sin, but when you see the Messiah, see what he's done for you. And it, what it's going to do in the lives of them is in 
talked about in Romans 11. It says that all Israel will be saved. So this is the moment where they're going to open their eyes, they're going to see this happening, and they will understand that as a people who were wrong, responsible, that they had, they had sent their Messiah to the cross. And, you know, is it any different for anyone who comes to the Lord today? This is, the, this is what has to happen in our lives. We, you know, we've got to first look to Jesus for salvation. We've got to look to him, and there's a sense of mourning over our sin when we come before the Lord. Um, when we look upon him, we had a part in piercing him. And so the Spirit reveals our need of salvation through all this. My coworker and I were talking about, uh, he's a believer, and we were, we were talking about this because I had been to a... Um, I'd been to a Catholic funeral on Monday, and then I went to Colleen's on Tuesday. And there was, and I'm not bashing Catholicism or anything like that, but there were a lot of things that I was seeing there that that don't point us to Christ. And and I was just looking over the mass of people, and I'm thinking, Lord, how do we, how do you reach these people? You know, how do we talk to them? And and we were just having the discussion about that. I'm not in the saving business. I don't. I can't do that at all. But what I can do is show people Jesus, you know, lead, lead them to Christ. That's what, we're, that's what we're supposed to be about doing. Be like the Andrews that are just dragging people. Okay, look at Christ. If you look at him and see the one that was pierced for your sin. So that, that's us talking the gospel. That's demonstrating Christ-likeness into the lives of people. So, you know, will these people that we see, that we come in contact, surrender their life to Christ, or will they mourn over their sin? Will they see those things? And this continues to happen in our lives as we are saved, and, and we see that every day our sanctification is all part of this process where we're mourning over sin, looking into our lives, asking God to reveal sin in our lives so we can repent of it and turn to him. And um, so we get down to verse 12, and it runs down this list of all these people who are going to mourn, uh, you know, taking some time and thinking on these things. And these are all different lines of people. So it's... Uh, You've got a kingly line, you've got a priestly line, you've got the line of Mary all laid out here. And it really speaks to that all classes of people are going to have this realization. It's going to come to them. The Messiah is calling all men to repentance. That's the beautiful thing. That God, God's call reaches every social class. No one is above needing saved and no one is beyond being saved. This message comes to everyone. And so when we get to 13... Um, Verse 1, it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So in that day, once again, we're continuing. And he says, for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, once again, it's the common person and the royal person are going to have this fountain. And that's why I was talking to Beck about that song. There's a fountain filled with blood. It was written because of this verse, 13.1. It was written and just seeing this fountain that is available to all people. This cleansing of sin will come to Israel because they've been in a state of defilement. They've, they've been disobedient to the law of God. They had rejected the Messiah. But God is going to cleanse Israel and all of its filthiness. And it's going to be a fountain pouring over them. And um, just, what, have you ever, you feel like it's amazing when you're filthy and you get cleaned up. It's like you come out of the, well, we were at the Dead Sea, but, you know, the people put mud all over themselves. There's nothing like getting cleaned up after something like that. It's like there's a refreshment that comes, and that's what's going to happen when these sins are cleansed. It's this fountain's going to rush over. God didn't overlook them. They were paid for. First John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
And so look at the pattern that we see here of happening in the lives of these people as we go 12 to 13. There's this mourning over sin, there's repentance, and there's cleansing, all of the things that happen when we, when we come to Christ. In verse 2 of 13 says, And it shall, be, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot, begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Hmm, that doesn't sound good. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I am no longer, I am no prophet, I am a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And if you look at the history of Israel, there has always been a pattern that, that they struggled with. Idolatry and false prophecy were, were creeping up all the time. And, you know, when you think about idolatry and false prophecy, it, it's just kind of a sin that just keeps propagating through our, through our world. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I, I remember we went to Rachel's uh, family one time, and they were trying to sell a house. And they said, oh, you need to put a... Uh, statue of St. Joseph upside down in your yard to sell your house. And, and what kind of craziness is this that we got to do? It's just, it's idolatry that you, you know, you're trusting in something other than the Lord to sell your house. It was like, uh, I couldn't believe it was happening in our country. But I mean, we, we set up, you know, and, and false prophets, uh, it, it happens all the time. We just wait till the next election cycle and every false prophecy will come on TV. Self false prophet will say, and God's going to do this and this guy's going to be elected. I'm like, we got false prophets running everywhere. It's running wild. But, but idols today and idolatry in America, we, we, it's completely different. We've got like job status, physical appearance. Anything we're putting above God becomes this idol that, that just becomes an obsession in people's lives. And, and when God's present, that's going to put all the idols to rest. When God is in a place, no idol can compare to God. And that's what we're seeing here, that idolatry is going to be gone. Also, God is going to clean up all the, clean, you know, the unclean spirits in the land. And you know, when Christ returns, redeems Israel, sets up the kingdom, there's going to be no demon, demonic activity going on anymore. And I think we're so used to the things that we, you know, we, we don't know what these principalities and powers are doing in our world. But it's going to be a magnificent time when all human activity is gone, and God and He's going to clean that up. In fact, in verse three, he, there's this huge opposition to false prophecy, and um, that even if a false prophet does arise, they're going to take his life, even if it's their own child. It made me think of you know where are your priorities with the Lord? You know when you're thinking about this thing, it's like is is my family more important than the Lord? And um, in Deuteronomy, it said, if anybody was leading you towards other gods, they needed to be killed. That was a wickedness that needed to be taken out of the camp. So where do we stand? Jesus, um, he, not to this degree, but he said in uh, Matthew 10, he said, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So th there's, a, there's a standard by which God is calling us that, that he is the highest priority. And so when these false prophets arise, if bloodlines won't matter, only God's going to matter. So devotion to the Lord is going to surpass bloodlines. And they'll be so opposed to 
uh, about being known as a prophet that they're going to like put their hands up. They won't put on the clothes of a prophet. And you, you got to think about people like Elijah, John the Baptist, who would put on these clothing of a prophet to go out and talk. And they're like, not going to put any of that on. Not the religious garb. They won't do it. And false prophets, would they would cut themselves many times when they're making all their prophecies and such. And uh, you can see that in First Kings on Mount Carmel. You can see it in Jeremiah. And some commentators believe that this that they're kind of declaring these wounds that they have are, are because the things that they used to love, those types of things is where they got all these things. Instead of my close friends, it refers to the lovers or the, lover, the things I used to love. And he's talking about that. So they're not going to do that stuff. They're going to back away and said, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm a farmer. I do, I'm not doing any of this false prophecy. So Israel is going to be de- cleansed of their defilement and sin and the deception of the fake prophets. And genuine conversion leads to several things, right? It leads to a restoration of fellowship, the positive. But it also leads to this negative. It's removal of some things in our life, the old sinful habits that broke the relationship with God. That's what we're seeing happening here. So we get to verse 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. So Israel's de- redemption was to come through the sword coming against the good shepherd. And uh, the death of Christ was the plan of God. It was the redemptive plan. And here we see God calling the sword to awake. And look what it says. It says, the sword is being brought against the man who is my companion. And the Hebrew for companion means the fellow of my union or my equal. So this is a fascinating declaration of the deity of Christ here in Zechariah say in the Old Testament. And when they struck the shepherd, when they struck Christ, the sheep were scattered. Jesus was said this was fulfilled on the night he was betrayed, that they were going to strike the shepherd and the sheep were going to scatter. And it happened then. It happened in AD 70. They scattered. They've been scattering ever since. It's just, it just began there at that time. He says, then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so we have this, um, this is the believing remnant, the little ones, that God was declaring persecution was going to come against the church. And we see that in Acts. We see that coming. And once the church was established, that just kept moving forward. Persecution just continues to arise. And if you, you know, we think about persecution, those who are in Christ, persecution is going to come. You know, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, and I think this should encourage us as believers that, you know, our shepherd knows persecution is coming. He, he, he's prepared you, already told you it's going to happen. So when we stand boldly for the Lord, persecution is going to arise. Um, knowing it's coming, how should we respond? I was just looking at um, Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, we also glory in tribulations, know that tribula- knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we're... Persecution comes, but we 
survive through it. We know that the Holy Spirit is with us. God is working through all of our persecution, refining us, refining our lives, growing into great Christ-likeness. It really changes the way we pray when we're going through persecution because is it, can I please get out of this or is it, Lord, I need to, I need you to show me what, what you're doing through this. You know, Lord, I just want to honor you through this. Take me through it. I've seen many people talking about they had cancer and it wasn't so much they were praying to get out of it, but they wanted to know the Lord more deeply through the, through whatever they were going through. But persecution, when persecution, when we're standing up for the Lord, you know, if you're standing up for a little bit at work and persecution is coming, you got to be in that mode of prayer and say, well, I know this is going to happen, you know. So, so we see the shepherd. So what we see here is that the shepherd was going to die. And when the shepherd dies for the sins of his people, scattered because of their rejection, and then the little ones, the Lord will allow to go through suffering and persecution, and the persecution is going to purify the church. And when we get to 8 and 9, it jumps back to the tribulation. So that was at at Christ's death, and then we see this jump back to the tribulation. And it's believed that one-third of the Jews will survive the great tribulation. So this may point to, point to why Jeremiah calls this time the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah. So one-third is going to go through the fire of the tribulation period. Two-thirds are going to be knocked out. And, you know, fire always has that cleansing, purifying effect on, on people, on, on God's people. And so this process is going to have that effect on the remnant and each one, look what it does. Each one will say, the Lord is my God. They're, they're going to come through and they're going to recognize it. It's going to be amazing. So when we get to 14, the chapter 14 begins and it's, my Bible says it's the day of the Lord. So we've kind of had in 12, we had the battle of Armageddon. And here in 14, we have the battle of Armageddon. We have like two pictures of, uh, of it going on. So what we know is um, the chapter... This chapter establishes the millennial kingdom, the end of human history. Um, so the Israel is going to be regathered. We know that. Uh, there's going to be this state of unbelief. Then there's going to be a waiting for a time of salvation. But their salvation won't come until Jesus returns and they look on the one they've pierced. So we know that's happening. Um, we know from other passages that prior to that time, they're going to make a pact with uh, the Antichrist. And then everything's going to be going fine. For a little while and then it's all going to go go bad the the antichrist is going to break this covenant with israel he's going to require them to worship him they won't do it and when the people of israel refuse they gather these armies against them and this leads to an, a siege against jerusalem and the land of palestine and we know that's the battle of armageddon and so here when we pick up 14 we're right at that siege what's been going on so verse one says behold the day of the lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So we mentioned earlier, here's the day of the Lord, the period of time when uh, beginning from the rapture of the church, extending through the millennial kingdom, it covers the tribulation, the Lord's coming back to earth, conquering of the nations of Arm at, at Armageddon. And so... We're at a time when Israel is under siege by these armies, and, they, and these armies seem to have the victory. If you look at the things that are going on here, they've divided the spoils of the victory uh, of the city. Uh, the Lord is in control. It says God will gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem, so he's in control. God is using it to purge out the rebels from among his people. 
And he's also gathering the nations to punish them as well. So there's multiple things going on here. So the city's in trouble. It's been taken. Houses are destroyed. Women are raped. Half the city is in captivity. But a remnant is preserved. And so then verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the, bat, in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north, and half, half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, or Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. So God moves in. He goes forth to fight against those nations. God personally intervenes. Um, and Jesus Christ returns on the Mount of Olives. And it's just a small little mount on the east side of the city, but there's going to be this earthquake that's going to announce his arrival, and the earthquake's going to create this great valley in between the city. Um, so he hits this opens wide up and all those who are captive are going to be able to run through and it says the mountain valley so there's going to be this valley it's going to split and the people who are inside the city are going to be able to flee and Azal, Azal means near so it almost gives you this picture that it's not going to be very far they're going to be able to run and so as they fled uh, from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah so there was a there was a terrible earthquake at the time of Uzziah and it's going to be that type of fleeing Thus, my, it says, thus the Lord my God will come. And Jesus here is called the Lord my God. He's going to come. Revelation 19.11 gives us the same scene. Um, and if you're wondering where you're going to be while this is going on, yeah, here's your chance. You're in. <clears throat> it says he'll be accompanied by his saints. We see this um, in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. It says, uh, so, he, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you, as Colossians 3, 4, it says, uh, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jude 14 says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And so we get to, a, we're going to uh, participate in this beautiful scene that's going on. And, but don't worry, if you're not a good fighter, you don't have to do much. So you, you should be good. You should be good in this moment. <clears throat> in verse 6, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And so when Jesus returns, the heavens are going to go black. You know, I, I, there is such a parallel between 12 and 14 where we see... Uh, the God of creation talking about who he is. And then here we are in 14 and we see him doing a lot of creative works, his, using his creation to do magnificent and amazing things. Um, Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 13, 9. It says, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and anger. The stars of heaven and the constellations there shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. If you look at Isaiah 24, it talks about it. Joel 3 talks about it. Matthew 24 talks about it. Revelation 6, 12 to 14 says the lights of heaven go out. So the God of all creation is using his creation for this demonstration of, of his coming in this very special time. And so in that day, it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be 
the Lord is one and his name one. So Jerusalem is going to be dramatically changed. There's going to be this, God's going to crack open the ground, create this gushing spring that's going to send rivers running both directions, east and west. Uh, one's towards the Dead Sea, to the east and to the west. And you just, when you see water and all these things, it's just a picture of, you know, all this blessing that is going to be flowing out of Jerusalem and going out. It's really a beautiful picture. And at this time, Jesus is going to be crowned king. There's going to be one religion in the, on all the earth. And verse 10, all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, holy cow, I can't even talk. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place to the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So Geba is in the north and Ramon is in the south and they're going to they're gonna become like a plain. So you have this picture that the effect of everything's going to become a plain and Jerusalem's going to be raised up. It's going to be uh, sticking up to where it should be and God's going to use, you know, put Jerusalem back to its regular dimensions that it should have. People are going to live there with no more destruction. Truly amazing scene. The God of creation once again doing this type of thing. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people, verse 12, who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be, will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and on the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps so shall this plague be. So whatever this plague is, uh, it sounds nuclear to me. It sounds like something like that. And if we go back to chapter 12, you, you see that um, there was going to be blindness on the horses, madness. So we, you, you have this parallel of things going on and being described in different ways. You know, God is the giver of life, and God is, takes life away in some, some fashion. Here. It could turn a person into a skeleton before they hit the ground. You can see why the world would be in total panic when something like this is going on. And somehow, in all this confusion, the wealth of all the nations is going to be gathered and brought into the hands of God's people. That, to me, is reminiscent of when they came out of Egypt and, you know, that, that whole scene there where they plundered Egypt and gave it to the Israelis. We have this, this same sort of thing. So this, gonna, this plague will affect all aspects of the surrounding nations. In verse 16 it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feasts of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And so the feast of tabernacles celebrated the time when God tabernacled with Israel right in the, in the wilderness. And now here he is. He's living with them, tabernacling among them, 
come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And here we're seeing it's being fulfilled. All those who are believers will come and celebrate. And it appears in the millennial reign that Jesus is going to reign with an iron, uh, out of iron or something, because not celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles would be to despise the blessings of the Lord in this moment. And chapter 10 spoke of God and, and rain during the latter rains, the blessing that would be coming. And we talked about how that was a sign of blessing. That, And here's the same, same sort of thing. We see that if you're not going to come up, there's not going to be blessing coming on you. You're not going to get rain. And we get to 20 and 21. Very cool. It says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So holiness unto the Lord, that phrase was engraved on, um, on Aaron's turban, on this gold plate. And it meant that there was something special about, about him, that he, was, he was, wasn't like every other man. There was only one high priest, and now we have horse bells, we have pots, we have pans. I think the picture here is that everything is going to be holy unto the Lord in this time. Like, that's what it's going to be. And it says, no longer be, there's no longer going to be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And the Canaanite, that wording, it was a figure of speech referring to someone as like morally corrupt, uh, spiritually unclean people. And that's not going to be the case. They won't be there. And, you know, that, that's a call for us as God's church. We're, you know, he's calling us to be holy. And as we finish out Zechariah, you know, they um, it's kind of, we have a glorious future to, to think about, to uh, be excited about Christ's return. Uh, it's going to be an amazing time when he comes. He's going to come, we're going to be raptured, then we're going to come back with him and, and do all this exciting stuff, you know. But, so how does, that, how does this make us live today? You know, I was thinking about this, I was talking to him yesterday about it, but we, you know, now we live we, because we have victory, we, we already we live we live from victory. Now we go out into the world living from victory, and and I, I just pray that as we're encouraged by the book of Zechariah, you know, just this amazing book from the Old Testament, that you know that we're just and highly anticipating the day of the Lord. That that when He comes, we're going to be excited. We're going to love His appearing, and that's what God wants us to do. So I'm I'm excited. For, for what God is going to do and anxiously awaiting his return. So let's pray. So Father God, it is so, um, it is so amazing to, to know that you have given us insight into what you're going to do. And God, as we go out now, just knowing that uh, all that you have done, that you, have, you were pierced for us, that you died for us, that you were shed your blood, and now that there's this fountain of, um, that is just available to anyone to come and be saved, Lord, that you are calling all men to repentance, Lord. Lord, just fill our hearts with joy for you and uh, a joy and a love for people as we go out into this world, Lord. I pray for an opportunity for all of us, everyone in this room, Lord, that you just open a, a pathway that we can talk to someone to share the good news of, of your saving, redemptive work, Lord. And we just pray that um, you just bless us as we go out from here, God. And may you get the glory for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.